Tuesday, April 29th, and this is episode 65 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me as usual tonight is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening. Hey, episode 65. That's pretty cool. That's, uh, that's an achievement. Uh, yeah, nice round number. Yeah, I mean, can we start withdrawing Social Security now on the show, or how does that work? I don't know. Is it, is it, uh, is it 65, or is it 67? I, you know, I lose track. Yeah, well, I think the show can join AARP at least. That's that's very true, very true. <laughs> Anyhow, we're uh, we're we're uh, glad everyone's here listening, and uh, you know, as as uh, as usual, just a reminder: the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our respective employers. Indeed, past, present, or future. Yes, that's right. Unless we're self-employed, then it would. Yeah, by 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 virtue. Yeah, kind of. Anyway. Yes. Moving on, um, I, I, I did talk to Bob brief, briefly, and, and he basically said, quit f***ing hassling me. I've given you enough for a little while. Wow. So, anyway. I guess Bob had a bad day? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. So, maybe he'll be back next week. You know, I bet he's just getting too many questions about Harpleed from clueless people. <laughs> I think that may very well be the case. Uh, let's see. So, um, yeah, back, back on Heartbleed, I, you know, this isn't one of the stories I plan on talking about, but uh, I, I thought it was really interesting that in the aftermath of, of Heartbleed, Theo Durrett from the OpenBSD project had started Libra SSL, which, which is mm-hmm. just a horrible, horrible name. By the way, if you ever think about, to all the listeners here, if you ever think about forking a open source project libre is not the name i'd go with <laughs> just saying it i mean i understand the you know the the reason behind it and the emotion and all that but it's just a horrible name in any event i i found it really amazing that some of the some of the write up that that theo had done about what they had ripped out they had removed 90,000 lines of code and it was still functional from wow. 90,000 lines of code from OpenSSL, and it was still functional. Do you know the total line count? I, I don't. That would have been uh, an interesting fact to, to have, but no, I don't. That's crazy. Yeah. So so anyway, I mean, it's it sounds like it was kind of ripe for problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, any sufficiently complicated enough code is going to have issues, right? That's Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. and not, not trying to take a... A swipe at open source, but this sort of points out once again the blind devotion to open source being secure because many eyes are auditing the code. Just not true in reality. And be careful of buying into that. Particularly in, in the more complex, uh, some of the more p- complex packages where, you know, you, you you basically have to have a, you know, a doctorate in uh, in cryptography to be able to understand whether there are some problems. So, yeah, absolutely. There, there's a very limited skill set that can actually truly audit that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
but it's just you know I'm not dogging on open source. I just I just sometimes feel people are have a false sense of security when it comes to the the security of open source. Well, you know it, and I know we're we're way off track, but it, it's it, it's an interesting thing because I don't expect that OpenSSL ever thought that their stuff, you know, the the six people that maintain that thing would have ever imagined if you would rewind 10 or 15 years that their piece of code would be so pervasive in every single thing out there, you know. It, it yeah. and I I just don't think they that was ever kind of in the cards. And so you know, I think there's a lot of people who that bears some responsibility for how it got to the way it did. And I, you know, honestly, I think a lot of companies, uh, you know, I know what maybe complicit isn't the right word, but kind of, you know, let it happen. And no, I think that's a great point. And, you know, the product managers and the coders who decided to go grab this package and use it for whatever it is they're working on, they absolutely bear some responsibility for not, either properly auditing that package or whatever. You know, at the end of the day, they go grab the widget and they throw the widget into their code. Hey, they're the one who grabbed the widget. Yep, yep. So so there, I don't know if you saw the news, but there was a, a the Linux Foundation has circled up a bunch of, um, of big companies that rely on Linux and open source, and, and they started this, uh, I think they call it the Core Infrastructure Initiative and... and uh, they're basically all these companies are going to be pitching in a hundred thousand dollars each per huh. year, and they're going to do essentially code audits, nice and, and rewrites, and you know that <laughs> given what we saw, it's probably not a bad idea. I mean, whatever you think open source, it's here. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. So, yeah, that's always a good thing. You know, the question is, are do are we developing new code at such a rate that you know code audits are for existing code, existing open source code, you know, putting a finger in the hole in the dike while there's huge, massive amounts of water flowing over the top. Not saying it shouldn't be done. Um, yep. I mean, you got to tackle the problem at some, in, yeah. in some way, right? Doing nothing is, is I think, untenable now, given what we just mm-hmm. saw. So, Yeah, no, I had not seen that, but, you know, I was way too busy worrying about some basketball team owner's personal... I can, I can understand that, yeah, yeah. Because that's that affects me a lot. Anyhow, <laughs> now now that we've lost uh, the the other half of our eight listeners, well, no, we were up to twelve. Oh, so that's, now we're that's back true. down to six. Down to six. Okay, we uh, we're going to get into stories now. The first one I have for you tonight is Cisco has released their annual security report for 2014. And it is a lovely 81-page PDF. Uh, and, and it takes a long time to read. And I'll, I'll say I didn't make it all the way through before before broadcast time. But um, there are some interesting findings that, that I'll just kind of plow through here, uh, which I think are, are worth sharing. First is malicious exploits are gaining access to web hosting servers, name servers, and data centers. And and I think the the point there is the commod what I what I would call the commodity attacker is in in some respects turning away from the home user into some of these data center uh, commodity data center uh, locations which are 
more useful to them in in a lot of different ways, right? They're they're on higher bandwidth connections. They, uh, you know, they they can send sp- spam. They can host exploit kits and all all manner of fun stuff. Um, their next finding was that buffer errors are the leading threat at twenty one percent of the common weakness enumeration threat categories. I find that really interesting, um, and and a little hard to believe, but eh, you know. It's not my report. Malware errors. You know, if oh. only we had the concept of like sanitizing our input. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that technology is decades away. I'm not sure we can do that yet. It may very well be. Can, can I go back one, one bullet point too? Because I struggled to add at the uh, the first bullet point about going after the <clears throat> web hosting services, name service, data centers. They use the term Uber bots, which you know I thought was kind of entertaining. It, it, yes, I I intentionally skipped over Uberbots because I didn't really want to say Uberbots, but I, I had to. It's fine. I, it's, you know, and and they use the umlaut, so it's you did. Yep, you're right. Uh, their third bullet was uh, malware encounters are shifting towards electronic manufacturing and the ag- agriculture and mining industries at about six times the average encounter rate across uh, industry verticals. So that that actually is an interesting finding in my. My view, and and I, I suspect they have enough coverage to be able to, you know, to to authoritatively say that that is in fact happening. I don't particularly understand the methods or, or the reasoning why that is. I I suspect it probably has something to do with uh, what people want out of those verticals. But uh, you know, well, it's also you know a relative stat. So it could be that the agriculture order and whatnot had very little previous attacks and a relative small movement could result in a 600% growth. Um, You know, uh, like you, I did not get into the deep data, so I'm purely speculating because I could be completely wrong here. Moving on, the uh, spam continues its downward trend, although the proportion of maliciously intended spam remains constant. And, you know, that kind of matches what I see. I see personally and, and professionally, I see um, I see a lot of spam that is, is very clearly either virus-laden or links to an exploit site. And, you know, it, obviously there still is, I still get a lot of uh, Nigerian princes and, and um, male enhancement spam. I don't, I don't know why they would send that to me. But but anyway, um, Java comprises ninety one percent of web exploits, seven, and seventy six percent of companies using Cisco's web security services are running Java six. And and, and just in, in case you, you don't <laughs> catch the subtlety there, Java six is end of life. It's not getting patched anymore. So if correlation is causation, are we saying that those who use Cisco web services are dumb, so therefore they're still running Java six? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, it would be nice to say that as a I, as, I, as a rule. I, However, there's a lot of other study, independent studies, you know, what, like uh, from Secunia and and others, I think. Uh, but it would be an interesting, an interesting study if you could correlate the use of Cisco products with uh, bad yeah. pa- bad patching practices. For the record, Cisco is now never going to be our sponsor. No, well, I mean, we we're ticking them off one at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. What? Well, you know, I, I'm not actually implying that all people who employ Cisco security technologies are dumb. 
I mean, they bought Sourcefire. Sourcefire, Sourcefire is a good tool, or or even any that are dumb, right? Because we we don't know that for sure. Although although I'm sure some some are just coincidentally. Maybe we should apply for a federal grant to research this. <laughs> this sounds like a great idea. Just get out of this old infosec thing entirely. Sounds like a great idea. All right, moving on. Watering hole attacks are target are targeting specific industry related websites to deliver malware. Sure. You know, we, we saw that, I think we saw that a lot happen in 2013, starting with the Council on Foreign Relations and kind of going all over the the place throughout the year. So that's that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, you know, that's tied to the whole Java thing, right? I mean, that's, that's what's taking advantage of Java. Uh, indicators of compromise suggest network penetrations may be undetected over long periods of time. Big shock there, I know. Yep. Uh, threat alerts grew 14% year over year. New alerts uh, or not updated alerts are on the rise. Not terribly sure of the that that's all that meaningful. Well, we should pause for a second on that. Sure. Uh, compromises are not noted for a long period of time. We're seeing this all over the place. And this tells me once again that we are sucking wind as an industry at detection once we have a compromise. Yes. And we've got to get better at that. You Absolutely. Know, we've, and there's multiple, multiple ways to do that, but that is such a, a, a dangerous stat to, in my mind. Even if you accept the fact that you're not going to keep all breaches out, the fact that you would let them, I think the other research we read recently was 239 days on average before uh, compromise was detected. 239 days is, you know, we got to be looking at hours here. Yeah, not, Absolutely. You know, not not sixty percent of a year. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, we've been we've been talking about that for for a while. It, it you know it, it is the whole balance of investment on prevention versus detection. Or you know, there's one other thing that I would say. There is it's very possible that people already have the tools today to do this, but are not either monitoring appropriately or are not set up to do this or don't have the staff who understand mm-hmm. what these indicators of compromise means. It's not purely just a, a technology spend issue. You know, I was talking to a customer today and just came into an InfoSec role and uh, had inherited all this stuff and, and his, his IDS is starting to realize that all of his span ports were in an environment where he had a bunch of asymmetrical routing. So he's seeing bits and pieces of the conversation. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and uh, you know, he was looking for some help of how he could go to the networking team to, to discuss this with him. And, you know, but that that's that's so evident. I'm not I'm not picking on this guy because it's so common. But this is one of those things where I see over and over and over again. If you're not really paying deep attention to how these tools are deployed and configured, they're probably not doing a lot of good for you. So as much as I like to beat up on the current technology, I, I need to come back and say, are you running it properly? Yeah, that, that's a good point. When I when I say investment in detection, I mean not not only technology but but also you know, resources and people to to man it. Right? I mean that. Yep. I, I just I. I think for a long time as an industry, we've been very enamored with the whole protection and prevention thing. And, and now we're at a point where I think the the industry has pretty much come to the conclusion, and rightly so, that you can't keep everybody out all the time. You can keep a lot of people out, and it's worth 
it's certainly not a situation where we need to stop trying to prevent because that would be that would be very neglectful and irresponsible. But uh, it's also very irresponsible, especially when you got all these stats flying in your face, to not recognize that people are getting in despite all this investment in prevention technology and, and capabilities, and do something to you know, to improve your ability to detect and shorten the amount of time that people can be active on your network. Yep. So uh, the next one, the last bullet point here, I, I find I, I giggle to myself a little bit because there's always the push and pull between, oh, is, you know, Android is a very secure mobile platform and, you know, iOS is very risky, the most risky in fact. And, and and then vice versa. Ninety nine percent of all mobile malware in two thousand thirteen targeted Android devices. It is to me it's it's very it's very, very um much like what we saw in my mind at least with uh with PCs and Macs ten ten plus years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm I'm sure at some point uh iOS will, will catch up, but you know, it's not there. I think Android is, you know, th- there's more Android devices than, than iOS, and it's a harder platform to attack, and therefore, let's go where it's easy and economical. Yeah, yeah. Although, man, I, I really struggle with them when something says 99%, just based on critical thinking skills. It, there's, uh, you know, there, th- I did read this section. There's There are some detail behind... You know, behind this, and and I I suspect based on anecdotal experience, personal experience, mm-hmm. I, you know, it doesn't it, it doesn't sound unreasonable to me. So, what sort of conclusions can we draw, and how do we help our our listeners with with this report? Patch your Java. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I would agree. Don't you mean the ask.com toolbar installed? <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Always keep your ask.com toolbar up to date. <laughs> oh, Oracle. Uh, you know, I, I, you know there's a, there, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned throughout the report. Uh, you know, I, I think, I certainly think that the Java one is, is just a reinforcement of, of what we already knew. The, the point about detection and, and protracted uh, time to detect is, is certainly a takeaway. We need to keep focusing on that. It, it's, it's becoming more and more important as, you know, as the tolerance across the world and across the industries and, and, and kinds of data becomes much you know, the world is becoming much less tolerant with data loss, in my in my mind at least. It's true. Um, you know, these reports are so exciting. I would love if we had another one to talk about next. Oh, yes. Uh, before we do, though, before we do, there is one thing in here that I wanted to call out in particular. Okay. Th- at the very end, they have an, uh, an appendix, and they call out specifically – the need for organizations to have uh, data scientists, uh, you know, obviously if you're a small company, it doesn't make sense, right? But the, their point is that a lot of companies, to to the point you made earlier, a lot of companies are already collecting a lot of data mm-hmm. and not doing anything with it. And so their point is, 
capitalize on your investment. Bring in bring in some talent that will help you to analyze and and make use of some of that data to help protect your specific organization because you know this is a this report and the next one we're going to talk about are very generic across the industry and and they're in particular specific to the constituencies they're looking at which may or may not be representative of what you're seeing and if you have mm-hmm. data that represents you it would be really good if you had the the capability to analyze that so i thought that was a no it's good a, a good you thing know, i think what they're saying is data is getting big and if only we had Yes, yes. If only we had some big data threat intelligence. I'm pretty sure that if I put together a business plan that just included the word big data, target, and Snowden, I would be immediately funded. Uh, you got to put in threat intelligence. You're right. My bad. My bad. Threat intelligence. <laughs> next gen threat intelligence. <laughs> Ooh, next gen. Absolutely. 2.0. Threat intelligence oh. 2.0. I'm I'm sorry, listeners. I'm tired and cynical tonight. I I know this should not come as a shock. Yep, but it's been a long day. Next up, we have the the you know what, what is what is what I would say the Super Bowl of the infosec world now. It's true. The Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report came out last week. We need like bumper music for this section alone, like you know, new shows have when they're covering a story over and over again. <laughs> absolutely, <clears throat> and they have specific bumper music. That's what we need for the Verizon report. Uh, absolutely, uh, I, I we'll have to work on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, the uh, the DBIR is uh, you know all kidding aside, uh, just a, a an excellent excellent resource. Uh, and, and by the way, it keeps getting better. You know, it's it is. Something that Verizon tries very, very hard to make as useful as possible to as many people as possible, and you know they they work across lots of different organizations. And yeah, I guess I you know I'm going to crush on on Verizon for this this crazy report, but I I really think it is uh, you know, one of the best pieces of data that we have available to us uh, in the public domain, at least. So um, you know this this year, I, you know. I do have one thing I'll say about it, and I'm a little, I'm a little torn on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. This year, it's much less formal, much more conversational, and I would say, um, oh boy, just just not. <laughs> there's a lot of slang and and pop culture references sprinkled throughout the uh, the document, which made it interesting to read, but not something you'd want to give to an executive. Yeah, they do keep it kind of colloquial. Which, you know, maybe they did that on purpose so that, um, you know, you you would be forced to perform your your own interpretation and rather than, uh, you know, taking a screen capture and posting it into a PowerPoint slide. I don't Speaking know. of that, I do prefer to interpret it with interpretive dance when well, I'm speaking with executives. That's true. That's true. Yeah. We, we, we used to do that, didn't we? Yep. That that joke sounded much better in my head. That, you know, I'm detecting a trend with you in those jokes, but <laughs> well, since this will be my last show, <laughs> it's been great. It's been great having you on, Andy. Thanks a lot. Well, we've lost a connection, Andy. Uh, we'll we'll work hard on getting that back up. No. Yeah. So Sorry. I have to say, for the listeners, you just have to read the report. It's you know, it's uh, sixty pages long. I can't. I can't do it justice. 
in just a couple of minutes of talking about it. Maybe we'll we'll go into some more detail about certain sections. There is one thing I saw, and and, and by the way, they break down uh, about a hundred thousand incidents that they've analyzed over the course of ten years, and they they. Uh, consolidated those into nine different patterns. And those patterns are POS intrusions, web app attacks, insider misuse, physical theft and loss, miscellaneous errors, crimeware, card skimmers, cyber espionage, and denial of service attacks. And basically they say that that 92% of those 100,000 incidents can be bucketed into one of those nine categories. And when when you look, what what they did was they mapped the frequency of those incidents in, in categories across the different industry verticals and what controls would have mitigated. And the one control that stuck out across almost all of them, uh, that's the one I'll, I'll bring up right now, is two-factor authentication for remote access. So if you, if, if you had to pick one thing to learn out of this report... I would say that's it because that's going to have the biggest, according to the report, the biggest bang across the most, you know, the the most threat categories. Um, the the other thing I took away, and we've talked a lot about about this because of Target, and you know the the, the Verizon Enterprise guys that put this report out are big, you know, st- statistic nerds, and and I and I say that in the in the, in the nicest possible way. In case you guys are listening. Uh, they point out that, that it's it's easy to fall into a rut of a cognitive bias based on media reports, right? And so relative to the ram scraper malware and the ram scraper attacks on Target and probably on Michaels and you know, we don't know that for sure and, and, and others, uh, th- they point out that despite those big headlines they're not happening that often. You know, there's there's things that are happening with much greater frequency. And in fact, those attacks, except for the, the couple of really big name attacks uh, with Target, um, are, are very, very infrequent with larger companies. Plane crashes versus automobile accidents. Exactly right. Exactly right. So anyhow... Um, Go read the report. It's awesome. It's a good report. Keep in mind, though, you know, I, I by the way, I just finished a you know, just finished a class on uh, on inferential statistics, and you know, it was a it's a tough class. But one of the things that I took away from it is you have to be careful when you start extrapolating data like this. And I think Verizon does a really good job of of warning you against that, but you have to understand that while they have a lot of data here, it's kind of cl- clustered amongst the people that they polled, right? So it's it's uh it's biased in favor of people in certain certain uh, uh you know, size revenue sizes or 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 industry verticals or countries or whatnot. So that may or may not be representative of your business. So you know, got to just kind of keep that in mind, but you know, it's a great report. Read it. I think you'll you'll learn something from it. So, I would agree. It is a very very good report and I have skimmed it for the show, but I actually want to go back and really digest it. 
and uh, we could do a whole show just on the stuff in here. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah, it took it took me uh, it took me about a I'd say about a week in on the on the treadmill in the morning to <laughs> to get through it all. So, uh, and anyway, it, it's a good it's a good read, um, and it's an easy read. It's not it's not as dry as some other reports are. The next report we've got is from uh, the International Business Times, and the title is Zurich Insurance Unveils Seven Deadly Cyber Risks. Now, tell me that that title is not clickbait. Oh, it's absolutely clickbait because they don't actually I, – I, anyway. Sorry. Let me draw, <laughs> Listeners can draw their own conclusions. <laughs> the number risk number one is – internal IT enterprise. And those are those are risks associated with the cumulative set of the organization's IT infrastructure. So now let's also, before we dive into this, keep in mind where this is coming from. This is coming from an insurance group. And they're yes. looking at uh, financial liability. And they're looking at uh, you know areas that their potential clients or just people in general um, can reduce their risk of filing a claim for some sort of uh, infosec breach insurance. Yep, good point. That's a very good point. I mean, that's that's the reason they are, uh, you know, they are publishing this. Is I think uh-huh. the the point is similar to, you know, a, a car insurance company publishing, you know, good driving tips, <laughs> essentially. You know. It it is intended to to help you uh, avoid problems that would ultimately cost them money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, risk number two is counterparties and partners. And and the thing that that strikes me is the level at which this is written. Right? It's it is very very high level, and it's it's not talking about authentication or you know things like that. It's it's very, very high-level buckets. So, again, counterparties and partners, these are risks that arise from companies or, or outside organizations that you are dependent on or have a direct interconnection with. Um, the third one is outsourced and contract, uh, outsourcers and contractors, I guess. Risks usually from a contractual relationship with external suppliers or services HR, legal, or IT, and cloud providers. Clouds don't have any risk, though, do they? Do they? It depends on the type of cloud, right? Cumul, you know, Nimbus. Uh, uh, they have some risk because they generate thunderstorms. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, supply chain risk. I know that's all the rage to talk about these days. Is supply chain risk both risks to supply chains for the IT sector and cyber risks to traditional supply chains and logistics? Disruptive technologies. I thought this one was a little interesting, and I think the uh, I think the the examples they give are a little more informative than the description. The Internet of Things, which, by the way, behind kill chain, may be my least favorite term ever. <laughs> I I don't know why I'm so bothered by things like that, but I am. Uh, smart grid, embedded medical devices, driverless cars, and lar- the largely automatic digital economy. So, yeah, this one is interesting. They're like, risks from unseen or disruptive technologies. Yes. So, black swan events? Anyone? Sorry. Just... Well, I, yeah, 
Boy, that one's up there too. Mm-hmm. I know. That's yeah, you just like turn the knife, keep poking it, <laughs> a salt po- poking the bear. <laughs> but you know, it 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 is a it's a, it's a valid point, right? You know, it's the unknown unknown. Something could come up out of nowhere and smack your business with a disruptive. Right. Evolution of somebody else's technology. Right. And it's not necessarily even, um, you know, e- even a risk in the traditional sense. You know, what What if, uh, what if, you know, you're a dial-up provider and, and cable modems come online? You know, that's a, that's a disruptive, an example of a disruptive technology uh, harming your business. So uh, upstream infrastructure. This one is a, this one was also kind of interesting. Risks from disruptions to infrastructure relied on by economies and societies, especially electricity, financial systems, and telecommunications. So you know, think about think about the impact to your business if uh, you know if if the uh, you know the the central banking authority of your country melts down. What do you do then? What are you going to do then, Mister? Uh, and external shocks, risks from incidents outside the system, outside of the control of most organizations, and likely to cascade. And this is things like international conflicts, or dare I say it, malware pandemics. <laughs> Sorry. Well, but keep in mind, like you said, that this is targeted at executive level folks, and it's to get them to think outside the box of. What could come up and smack their business that they're not thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think from that perspective, this is actually a really good list of, of topics for, you know, the CFO level uh, to, to to start thinking about risks from technology. And I expected this kind of thing would come out of the insurance industry. You know, this is where mm-hmm. this is where the rubber meets the road from from a uh, you know, a risk perspective. So interesting to see. And, and uh, I suspect we're going to see more of this as time goes on. So the CFO is going to walk down to the director of security's office and say, fix that supply chain risk and then walk away. <laughs> That's right. What about that Internet Explorer thing? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, we got that coming up. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Moving on. We have a story coming from infosecuritymagazine.com. Sounds like a Nine, you know, 2001 kind of, anyway. Uh, Alien Vault CEO throws down the gauntlet on threat sharing. It's a very short story, but I thought it was interesting that here you have arguably one of the preeminent purveyors of threat intelligence saying, hey, we should all give away threat intelligence. Hmm. Which, you know, is a, it's kind of an interesting so thing. So let's I, back I don't up. Know. What does threat intelligence mean to you? I know what it means to me. What, what do you What do you think it means? And how do you think companies are actually utilizing it today? I, you know, I, honestly, I think threat intelligence is is very much like cloud. <laughs> no, and and I, 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 I'm I'm very <laughs> you very throw out buzzwords. No, 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 no. I'm, <laughs> I I am actually very serious because I think okay. I think the word cloud has extraordinarily different connotations to different people and you'll get an almost different you're almost guaranteed to get a different answer based on who you ask to me threat intelligence is a you know a a, a somewhat abstract and opaque concept of different indicators of compromise collected by 
know, d- different member organizations and, and compiled into something that's consumable for the purposes of, let's say, um, you know, blocking or detecting at your firewall, uh, you know, improving the accuracy of your of your antivirus or your you know your advanced malware protection or um <laughs> or your sim or, your, or or whatever your your apt blocker right don't i mean we we got to put that in the bucket now right that's true that's true i'm going to sell an apt firewall soon <laughs> um so i don't disagree with your definition but i want to dissect it for a moment so Ultimately, then, threat intelligence is derived from other people being breached, noting, noticing that breach, performing enough forensics on that breach to derive some sort of actionable information, and then sharing with others. Right. Does that sound awfully akin to an antivirus stat file update? Yeah, absolutely. So are we still under the same problem of if we're relying on threat intelligence, we're relying on somebody else to be breached in the same way first. It, it, and in the era of zero days and custom malware and morphing code and command and controlled botnets, isn't that a little silly? You, you've you've hit on the deep dark secret of threat intelligence that no one you're not you're not supposed to have you're not no supposed to speak. You're not supposed to have uncovered that threat intelligence is pattern matching, which is just like antivirus. All right. I just... Uh, and, you know, at, at some point, yes, I, and the, the, you know, the, the note I made for myself is that, you know, uh, let me back up for a second, right? The, the, the CEO of, of, uh, of Alien Vault is saying, you know, basically, hey, this stuff is coming out of, you know, out of these breached companies you know, we we ought to be, I guess, altruistic or, or or what have you, and stick it to the bad guys and make this stuff very public and very consumable. So, you know, bad guys have no hope. And my my comment is that bad guys will adapt. Absolutely, they will adapt just like the the virus writers have adapted. Yes. So, I also from a pseudo-political, pseudo... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm sure there's a good word. Sort of anthropo- anthropological standpoint. Um, I don't know that free information sharing is the most effective way to do this. Even if I b- agree entirely in the premise, free sharing rarely yields the best result in our society. Because there's not necessarily an impetus for profit to drive competition to drive the best possible threat feed. And yeah, I, I could yeah. probably be a lot more articulate about that. I'm sure you know economic scientists could be a lot more articulate about this. Um, oh, we're gonna get I, we're gonna get Eric Raymond in here, and he's gonna kick your butt. Uh, I bring it. <laughs> he's gonna kick your libertarian butt. <laughs> Anytime, Eric. Let's go. Um, so yeah, I just I, I need to formulate this thought a little better, and I probably should have done this before the show and actually written it down in a cohesive manner. I get what you're saying, but ultimately, 
I'm not sure, although it sounds great and it, it seems like a wonderful thing, I don't know that it's truly the most effective way of doing things. Well, I, let me let me try to let me let me take a, a swipe at paraphrasing a little bit. It, if there's no profit behind it, can you as a and you as a consumer of it, you know, can you really rely to the level that you need on you know, on that data to let's say block transactions or 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 what have you because mm-hmm. there isn't there isn't someone who is who is incented to to make that data really high quality and i th- and i suspect you know that's that's kind of the argument or or at least part of the argument and you know it's the same thing that we had with with open source versus closed source and mm-hmm. you know this this is a philosophical debate that will will tie uh, you know, tie people up for the next uh, probably 500 years, and we'll never really come to a conclusion you know, that True. The, the sun will burn out. And so, Mr. Alien Vault CEO, whose name I would have trouble pronouncing, I apologize. Uh, once more, open sharing of threat intelligence. Yes. Okay. Yes, and and I think hit the exact quote. Uh, he said, security industry, let's lead the way, MEFTA proclaimed. MEFTA is the CEO. Let's take that threat data we're collecting through our products, combine it for greater insight, and make it available without restriction, and give the bad guys a run for their money. Imagine how comprehensive our threat intelligence would be if even just FireEye, Symantec, Palo Alto Networks, and Cisco got together. By the way, I don't see... Uh, Alien Vault on that list. Boy, you could cover the range of threat vectors. So, you know, it's it's an interesting concept to be sure. And then then he goes on to say uh, that mandate needs to come from the top of the government, which I'm sure. (laughs) You know, when I read that, I'm like, Andy's going to think that's a great idea. (laughs) He's going to be all over that. Oh, be right back. I got to get some duct tape to wrap my head. Otherwise, it will explode. In, in, in any event, uh, only the best things come from government leadership. Only, yeah, well, you know, we. I had we, to say something. We elect only the best. That's true. We, uh, we're we're really good at electing winners. So, uh, in, in any event, I I thought it was uh, I thought it was an interesting uh, debate that. Threat intelligence is kind of all the rage right now. And here you got a threat intelligence provider saying, hey, we should make threat intelligence free. (laughs) Now, all that being said, I'm not telling folks to shy away from threat intelligence. I I think it can be valuable. But just understand what you're getting and understand what it is. And keep in mind the dependency involved with it. Yeah, that's well, my understanding. Right, this of the current iteration. The the source of the, the I think the source of the intelligence is important. I mean, there's no, mm-hmm. there, it, that's hard to debate, right? I mean, it's 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 similar. Like compare Clam AV to Symantec. You know, it's yeah, Clam AV will certainly detect some viruses from five years ago. <laughs> wow. Another vendor who will never be our sponsor, right well, there, ClamAV. Yeah, Good. well, they're, I mean, they're uh, it's open source, so. Well, and and they could have they could have done a Kickstarter campaign for us. Not now. Well, that's true. That's true. All right. Well, we beat that one into the ground. Let's move on. 
The next story comes from Ars Technica. It is titled, Stanford's Password Policy Shuns One-Size-Fits-All Security. I think this is pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, the net of this is that if you're going to use a, a short password, they're going to require a lot, you know, a, a much more complex character set. But the longer you make your password, the less complexity is required. And you know, and so so they have this this handy little graphic that kind of sums up the whole idea here. That if you are going to have, let's say, an eight to eleven character long password, you've you know you've got to have a special character, a number, a lowercase, and an uppercase letter. If you're going to do a twelve to fifteen character password, you need a number, a lower, and an uppercase. If you do a nineteen to twenty, all you need are upper and lower letters, and over twenty, you can do whatever you want. And and the 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 point is that as as the length of these passwords increases, the the complexity uh, proportionally increases. And so, you know, w- what's the what's the benefit to having uh, if someone wants to is willing to use a twenty character long password that is arguably more secure than an eight character long password with a whole lot of you know. Uh, um, complexity to it that nobody's ever going to remember you know seems like a better a better alternative <clears throat> now the one thing they didn't cover in here which i, I wish they did is um number one password managers yes uh you know that's kind of an important thing these days but but assuming you want to create password long long passwords that you can remember um there's a great thing called diceware and and I don't know if you've ever heard of diceware, but it you know it's a it's it's just a concept. It's not a product. Uh, and it, it, essentially, it's a dictionary of words. And you roll you literally roll dice, and you pick different words, and you can pick three, four, or five words, and the, your password becomes you know the the this list of of words that are are somewhat memorable and, and it's a you know it's a it's a it's a good idea the problem is that even that creates an incentive for you to reuse your password yes. which now when i'm rolling dice does it tell me how much damage i've done when i hit the monster oh jesus i knew you were going to go there can't take <laughs> no, you you're anywhere right. I, you're right and and this is the fatal flaw of reusing passwords especially reusing accounts Right, uh, you know, especially when many accounts are your email address. Now, not everybody out there owns their own domain name where they can make an endless number of login names. Yeah. So you've got to be rotating those passwords because, in general, the username's probably going to be known. And one thing that's driving me crazy is back in the day we always said, "Don't do anything with your password recovery or you know some sort of system that exposes whether or not somebody has guessed." Or the right username have the, have the same response if that user exists or doesn't exist. Nobody seems to do that anymore. No. They're like, nope, sorry, that user doesn't exist. Yep, that user exists, and we sent them an email. Okay, I just now have, I just got half of the equation. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a little bit of an aside, but you're right. In a microcosm of one authentication domain, long passwords are great. But when you look at it, holistically, 
we've got to be using different passwords on different sites. And I don't know a viable way of doing that without a password manager. Yeah, that, that's. I think that's the fatal flaw. I mean, it is a, it is an innovative thing that they are that they're pushing out the the concept that you have to have a you know really complicated eight character password or twelve character password, and saying you know let's it can be really long and very simple, uh, and and in that case you can actually have a you know some some hope of remembering it. But the but the fatal flaw in that is you can't remember more than two or three of these really long passwords it's just not going to happen and, yeah, or, and or you're developing a pattern that's guessable by including yeah your normal one plus the website name or something right exactly um, which exactly. believe me the bad guys have thought of that <laughs> yeah um so so you know it's it's a it's a you know kudos for thinking out of the box um but on you know on the, on the other hand i i think it's propagating a problem that at some point we have to address and we just don't seem to be willing to address it. Or, like you said earlier, two-factor. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the better way to go. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, the, the, there's a lot of uh, organizations that don't want to do that for some reason or other. Yeah. You know, and then, by the way, I, you know, I can, I can remember, uh, I think in my career, I've implemented and and taken back two factor three or four times. I can remember uh, uh, at one point in my career being called into the chief operating officer's office after I was um, suddenly thrust into a new position <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that was uh, a little higher in authority than uh, than I had before, and I was told that you know I had a I had a mission to do, and that was to get rid of two factor because everybody hated it. So, wow, that's that's very telling about security in general. Yep. Yep, and uh yeah, I mean, you know, it's it is uh it is a at the end of the day, it's a business it's a business decision and and when you are the COO of a company, you get to make those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. So, uh all right, moving on, the the next story we've got is from Trusted Sec, which is uh if if you're following along at home, Dave Kennedy's company, and Dave is the author of the Social Engineering Toolkit. So, uh, th- this is a, I thought, a, something worth talking about. It's a, a current, apparently, current social engineering scam that kind of crosses over into the online world. And um, I, I, I seem to remember hearing something like this a couple from a couple of years ago, but essentially the scam goes like this. A uh, an attacker will compromise uh, one of your vendors or partners' email accounts, which is pretty probably pretty easy because you know everybody reuses passwords. And then uh, they start communicating with your accounting department, and they they may request uh, you know a refund or or what have you. And over time, what they'll do is they'll they'll register a domain that looks similar to the vendor or uh, the, the partner and they'll transition the accounting department to, you know, to, to that, that new domain. And the, the goal is for them to, you know, either get product or, or get a refund cut from your organization to them. And then they run off with, with your money or your stuff. So, 
you know, they they uh, they recommend that you have a, a conversation with your accounting folks on on this particular attack because apparently it's uh, becoming relatively common. And and there's uh, they said they're seeing a, uh, losses ranging from fifty thousand dollars all the way up to a million dollars in wire fraud. So. And the challenge is, uh, you're not protected with a business account like you are with a private account. No way. That's right. That's right. So this is a, especially for smaller businesses, this is really damaging. I mean, this this is the kind of thing that can put you out of business if you're if you're not careful. So. Yeah, the, the bank's not going to be nearly as helpful to you as 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 you're used to them as a consumer experiencing fraud. So. Right. Uh, you know, get on that. Absolutely. All right, uh, the last story we've got today, and man, I hate this one, comes from Qualys. It's a, it's actually a couple of days old by now, and the subject is New Internet Explorer Zero Day. This is not a repeat of last month. Or, or the month ago. before that, or, yeah. So, yeah. so the big news on this one is that it appears impacts all versions of Internet Explorer. And actively being exploited. And it's actively being exploited, although the extent to which that exploitation is happening is the subject of some debate. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it apparently, currently, the, the, the way it's being exploited also relies on a vulnerability in Flash Player. And, but it's not exclusively reliant on Flash Player, just was uh how the the uh the attacker in this particular case chose to to uh run the exploit chain. So uh, in any event the really particularly interesting thing for me here is number 1 here's the first real vulnerability we've seen post XP sunset that XP will not be patched for. Uh and and boy there's a whole lot of people making a whole lot of noise about this. You know, and because on Microsoft's website where they they uh, they have an announcement about this, you know, they don't even list XP, and in you know what, and there's been all sorts of talking heads about that. How oh, they don't they don't even list XP. You know, I want to say yeah, they don't list Windows 2000 or ME or 98 or 95 either. Yep. Uh, so they're uh, you know there there it is. So in, in any event. <laughs> And for the record, though, if you are paying Microsoft for custom patches, I bet you will get a patch. That is, uh, that's my understanding, yes. Yeah. Yep. So uh, um, you can use, as usual, the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit apparently protects you from this. So that's, uh, you know, one more reason you ought to be looking at that if if you're not already doing it. And Can, can I say one thing on, on Emet? Yeah. Um, we talk about it a lot, uh-huh. and I was kind of digging into it a bit today. And, and one thing I'll say is, Emet is a complicated beast. Yes, it has a lot of power, has a lot of functionality. This is not something you're going to need jerk and throw out there. So, no, it is not a emergency remediation tool, you know, or a mitigation tool. It's something that you really should be looking at in a pragmatic, thoughtful. Um, you know, programmed way about rolling out your gold standard. So yeah. don't wait for the next crisis. 
start looking at EMET now and how you can integrate it into your gold standard for your boxes because it's going to take you probably a month or two to really get it right and get it rolled out. At least it it is I mean, as you, as you mentioned it's very problematic to to roll out. It, yeah, it will cause blue screens like there's no tomorrow. If if you turn on if you apply it to the wrong application, it will blue screen. But the you know the whole idea is in 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 operation if if emet can't silence whatever's going on it will cause a blue screen and that's preferable to right an exploit but uh you know <laughs> like i've got a case right now where i can't install it on one of my boxes because it's incompatible with uh, office 2003 uh which mm. which by the way is also end of life um and you know it it is a it's a i think the last Four or five big Internet Explorer vulnerabilities were mitigated by this, and and also the big, the most recent big uh, Office yep. vulnerability was mitigated by it. So, you know, as you, as you said, test it out. It's a it's a it's a good piece of technology if you can get it to work. It's a it's a little bit of a high maintenance kind of thing, especially to get it up and running. But it seems like it's worth it if you are indeed worried about um, you know zero day exploitation. So. Um, that's all the stories we have for today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And as usual, if you have any thoughts or opinions, ideas for uh, for the show, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can follow uh, the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can find show notes and whatnot on the website, www.defensivesecurity.com. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurk and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. With that, we bid you adieu for another week. Have a great one. Take care, everyone. See ya. Bye. Bye.